This is an ABC podcast. It's been coined the most important deal you have never heard of. A treaty that covers the rules for half of our planet. The ocean. This treaty regulates specifically what happens in international waters, also known as the high seas. Now, when you think of the high seas, you might instantly think of pirates and sea shanties, but a high sea treaty is another matter altogether. It's an international treaty that covers what lies deep between the ocean and everything in between. And after 20 years of negotiations, a high sea treaty has finally been agreed upon. I'm Sinead Mangan. And this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadja Country, Perth. The ship has reached the shore. To cheers, tears and a standing ovation, an historic deal to protect international waters was finally reached in New York's United Nations headquarters last weekend. This deal was 20 years in the making and it's called the High Sea Treaty, which is quite lyrical in itself. It's a legal framework for all parts of the ocean outside of national boundaries. My guest is Associate Professor Dr Daniel Dunn of the University of Queensland. We throw this term around the high seas, it's quite poetic, but what exactly are the high seas and what exactly are international waters when we're thinking about that in terms of the globe? Sure. And thank you very much for for taking on this topic, because uh, as you just sort of indicated, this is not something that most people think about uh, on a daily basis. Um, We're talking about waters that are beyond national jurisdiction. And normally national jurisdictions are about 200 nautical miles from shore. So waters that are beyond 200 nautical miles. And if you ask folks uh, sort of how much of the world is that, you'll tend to get uh, answers between maybe 10 and 20 uh, or so, but it's actually half of the planet. Um, So what they've been working on for the last 20 years is trying to figure out how you sort of create a a constitution for biodiversity uh, over half of the planet. Going back a fair few steps, who decided what was international waters or not? When was that Ah. decided? When were the boundaries decided? (laughs) Yeah, this has actually been a progressive uh, history of moving uh, boundaries out further and further and further. And it it goes back uh, since the days of actually Roman times and even before where uh, we were sort of expanding our area and trying to understand the legal framework for water as opposed to land. And essentially in the the 20th century, uh, in 1982, at the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, was the first time where people, the countries came together and sort of agreed on this uh, general framework for 200 nautical miles from shore. There are some countries that have different uh, distances, but for the most part, everybody agreed at that point in time. And, and part of the reason that, that drove that was actually fishing close to nation's shores and uh, countries, not, countries wanting more control over um, who was fishing close to shore and, and utilizing those resources that were so critical to their um, uh, their country. So given that the regulation of what we call the high seas or international seas weren't tight enough, I suppose that's the conclusion that, we, that, that was come to. Ha, has that been taken advantage of? Um, I would say it's, it's been 
I mean exploited. There, Where has sure, it been yes, exploited? There, yeah. I want to be careful about this because um, in, in many ways these organizations are are trying and they are improving. Uh, but there also there are places where there are complete gaps in governance. Uh, so there are parts of the ocean, um, particularly when we talk about something like squid fishing. Um, there are parts of the northern Indian Ocean and parts of the southwest Atlantic uh, near Argentina where there is no fishery organization and there is massive, massive fishing going on. So there's definitely places where um, you could argue that they were exploiting or finding loopholes in the current regimes and, and utilizing them. What about in terms of you, you mentioned mining of the seabed? Mm-hmm. Are there areas of the world where that's been exploited? Uh, no. So actually, the the... The thing with deep sea mining is that it is not currently occurring in areas beyond national jurisdiction. What they're doing is exploring, uh, but they are spending a lot of money exploring and they are waiting on regulations to begin to exploit uh, mineral resources on the seabed. Um, The timing of this is really interesting because uh, a year and a half ago, Nauru um, pulled the trigger on a particular policy within the International Seabed Authority, which said that they would be allowed to mine regardless of any um, existing constraints if they hadn't come up with a framework for exploiting mineral resources. So there's been a huge push over the last couple of years to try to develop those um, regulations, but those regulations are still not in place. And they were the one thing, uh, the lack of those regulations was the one thing holding back deep sea mining, the actual exploitation instead of exploration. Uh, So we actually may see this year the first deep sea mining in in areas beyond national jurisdiction. And this treaty actually won't won't stop that. It won't stop that. It will not stop that. So what what this treaty is, is it's a, a mechanism to deal with certain gaps in the legal framework that we had. And those gaps are, are quite specific. They're about biodiversity. They are about environmental impact assessments, about marine genetic resources, and about capacity uh, uh, development and uh, technology transfer. How these things interact with the existing authorities is one of these big, massive questions that nobody can answer. And it's really a matter of, of seeing how things move forward and how those existing management authorities uh, will um, cooperate or not cooperate with this new treaty and the sort of the uh, conference of parties that will go along with this new treaty. So the basis of the treaty is essentially about the environment as opposed to sharing a resource. Is that right? Or is it both? It's it's both. It's uh, The sharing is really specific to marine genetic resources, which has been um, a, a one of these big gaps, just a big puzzle piece missing um, from this from this picture. Uh, so and we've had this in on in terrestrial uh, world as well. And under the Convention on Biological Diversity, they came up with something called the Nagoya Protocol, which dealt with how nations share uh, genetic resources. Um, and it was really trying to combat um, a sort of colonial, not a sort of a, a, a very colonial um, way of going into countries, looking at the resources, identifying uh, genetic resources, taking them back to first world countries, uh, developed countries, and and creating pharmaceuticals and making loads of money off them. So mm. they've, they've tried to deal with that on the terrestrial side, but there wasn't anything like that with for areas beyond national jurisdiction. So again, it was really just a matter of who could get there, who could l- look for these uh, and investigate sort of new materials and new new genetic resources, and then make use of them. So that this is this is actually a huge huge part of of this treaty that I never thought would come to um, fruition. Which is there is an argument. There has been an ongoing argument because, uh, and this is this is pretty technical, but it's also weird and fun to understand. Mm. The seafloor 
the, you know, the solid base of the ocean, the seafloor, has a different access and benefit sharing regime than the water column. So the water column, right. anybody who gets out there can take whatever they want. There's nothing stopping a country from going and taking fish other than the trade agreements that they have as to what they can do with the fish afterwards. Um, the seafloor, however, uh, and those mineral resources are meant to be the common heritage of humankind, and they're meant to be shared. So there's a, there was a huge argument. One of the biggest things stopping this treaty from going forward was determining how they were going to share the resources on uh, these marine genetic resources, which might be in the water column and might be on the, the seafloor. And in the end, they actually went with the common heritage of humankind, which uh, wow. I did not think we'd yeah. ever see that happen again. I thought that was a, an a artifact of the 1970s and, you know, um, yeah. things that were happening then. But uh, we've, we've managed to do it again. And particularly when you say 95% of the room were lawyers in terms mm, of, yes. of who was in the room for them to fall on that as the, the greater good being, the, you know, the, where they were going to go with that argument. That's quite extraordinary, really, isn't it? It is. It is. It's, uh, it's, it's quite an accomplishment. And um, I think there are definitely some groups, particularly the um, European Union, who uh, were some of the first um, developed countries that came to the table sort of trying to find a compromise that would allow uh, countries that have the sort of bigger pharmaceutical um, companies within them um, to agree to the uh, uh, common heritage of humankind being the access and benefit sharing regime. I've used that phrase, the greater good. I mean, whether or not you agree with using what's called marine genetic resources is a different thing again, obviously. But tell us, what is that? What are we talking about there? Because you made mention of pharmaceuticals. Are you talking about stuff that you kind of will end up slapping on your face with face cream? Or what is that? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it could be. Um, it could be medicines. So, um, uh, th and this, I will say up front that this is not an area that I have dug into uh, um, as much as some of the other parts of the treaty. Um, but there are there's there are a number of good papers out there that talk about uh, how 80 percent of the um, patents that have come from marine genetic resources in areas beyond national jurisdiction in the high seas are from just a couple of countries uh, and from a, actually from a couple of corporations. So highly centralized use of this information. And yes, they use them for everything from cures, for lack of a better word, <laughs> uh, to facial cream, to um, even things like PCR tests uh, um, that we use to, you know, for, uh, for COVID. Um, some elements of those things uh, can have come from genetic resources in the, in, in the areas beyond natural jurisdiction. You're listening to Australia Wide with me, Sinead Mangan. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking to Dr. Daniel Dunn, the director of the Centre for Biodiversity and Conservation Science at the University of Queensland about the High Sea Treaty that's just been agreed upon. Now, Dr. Dunn's research into migratory species like whales fed into the decision making about the High Sea Treaty. He told me this treaty will result in more marine parks in international waters. Again, for 21 years now, we've been trying to figure out how we can create protected areas in this other half of the planet. So the society um, keeps putting forward these new targets recently. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the uh, new goal of protecting 30% of all environments by 2030. Um, that, frankly, could not have happened without this treaty. It, it would, we would never have got there on the, on the marine side. Um, and that's because half of the planet, we didn't have a mechanism for how we would be able to create those protected areas. Are we likely to see more marine parks as a result of this treaty eventually? Absolutely. Yeah. 
And what will that mean in terms of like whale, the movements of whales? What what, what will that mean? Sure. Um, And this actually gets directly to my main interest in this. So I... Uh, when I'm thinking about how we conserve the ocean spatially, I'm, I'm really thinking about migratory species and migratory species and how they connect Australia uh, with pretty much anywhere else in the globe, right? The entire Southern Hemisphere is connected by seabirds that just sort of uh, um, circumnavigate the, the South uh, Pole and Antarctica. Um, we have birds coming from uh, Alaska and Northern America that fly directly uh, down to Australia and New Zealand. Um, th- these, these migratory species connect all of the countries in the world in one way or another. And many of them spend huge amounts of time in areas beyond national jurisdiction and their critical foraging areas. There may be um, uh, places where tuna are spawning, um, important places for these species that exist in areas beyond national jurisdiction. Um, Things like seamounts are aggregators. That means they... they, um, Sharks and whales uh, and seabirds will use areas around seamounts because they're more productive for one reason. They have more food. So mm-hmm. they'll, they'll sort of concentrate around these things. And we haven't had a mechanism for protecting that type of area in the past. And this will be the first time that we'll be able to go uh, forward and try to identify things that everybody who has signed on to um, this treaty will have to abide by. So if, if that's the case, then if, if there are more marine parks, will that change things like shipping channels where defence, like, is, is that the kind of thing, would that be the, the kind of upshot of it? If, if it was that there are large marine parks where there were not marine parks before? Yes, um, I think uh, ideally the answer would be yes. I think there's always a political expediency that comes into play, which pushes things away from areas of high use, high human use. But some of the best examples that we have that have, that are currently being pushed are places like the Costa Rica Thermal Dome, which is an area um, just sort of on the Pacific side and north of the um, Panama Canal and has the shipping lane mm-hmm. where ships are going into the canal or exiting, going straight through it. Uh, it's also a critical place for blue whales, um, a variety of sharks, um, and, and things like that. So, And they know it. We've got very good evidence of, of how many animals or the types of animals that are using this and what it means to them. Uh, but it also has a shipping lane going straight through it. So what we can do to conserve portions of that now, the door has been open to actually trying to create protected areas in, in that type of place. What about closer to home here in Australia? Are there any areas that would be looked at that may shift things a bit for how it's been operated on at the moment? Yeah. uh, So the Tasman Sea is actually a very good example of this as well. There is a lot of seabird data in particular um, showing heavy use of the Tasman Sea by these uh, seabirds um, and migration by humpback whales as well. Uh, And I think you can expect that there will be um, uh, proposals to protect portions of the Tasman Sea as well. Now, protect doesn't necessarily mean that you can't do anything in that area. There are lots of different levels of protection. So it may be something um, where particular types of fishing uh, or particular types of activity um, aren't allowed to occur in in certain areas of the Tasman Sea. We're not talking about closing the entire thing to all fisheries and and all traffic. You've mentioned those that signed the treaty who are those key players? China is a huge player in these negotiations. They have a lot of interest in things like deep sea mining and uh, overseas fisheries, Japan as well. Um, the United States, which is interesting because the U.S. actually has, a, has not signed the U.N. Convention of the Law of Sea, uh, which means that they will not sign this treaty either unless they sign um, the U.N. Convention of the Law of Sea, which is sort of the parent treaty that this is a, um, uh, a 
yeah related to mm. um uh and and australia has played a a, a a huge role in this as well. Um, in general, in marine conservation issues, uh, Australia is at the forefront of these um, discussions and uh, they have played the same role in, um, as well in the BBNJ negotiations. Going back to that, the most important deal you've never heard of, why, mm-hmm. why is that? Yeah. Why hasn't it had more attention? Yeah, again, I think it's it's because these aren't places that we see and interact with every day. The 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 magnitude of the biodiversity in these areas is absolutely enormous. The role that that the ocean and the high seas play in regulating the Earth's climate um, is is absolutely enormous. It's the biggest heat sink on the planet. If we're not taking care of it and not understanding what's happening out there, then uh, uh, frankly, we're going to be really surprised in a bad way, as um, seems to be likely to happen at this point. But um, so it plays a huge role, but we don't we don't interact with it. We don't see it, uh, and because of that, we don't we don't really think about it. Um, it's the classic, you know, you don't you don't uh, you don't care about what you don't know. Um, mm. You got to you have to have some level of understanding and interaction with with a thing uh, before you can develop that sort of empathy and compassion for it. And if you don't have the empathy and compassion, then you're, you're not going to spend time listening to this podcast or, <laughs> or uh, reading about um, the high seas. Uh, so I, I really think it's that distance, which does, uh, um, and, and the frank, you know, it's not just the distance. It's the fact that many of these ecosystems are under immense pressure and deep underwater. And so you can't see it. The pictures that we have that are amazing, but you, you know, you've got to go out there and look for them. Dr. Daniel Dunn of the University of Queensland. Well, I'm very glad that you took the time to tell us all about it. So thanks very much for your time in Australia Wide. Yeah, thank you, Sinead. Thank you very much for taking on the topic. ABC Australia Wide. New South Wales is widely known as the poker machine capital of Australia. Nowhere is that more stark than along the border with Victoria, where in some communities, there's one poker machine for every 13 people. With reforms to the sector becoming a hot-button issue ahead of this month's state election, border residents will be watching closely to see what it will mean for them. Victor Petrovic has the story. And there's always an urge, and it's always on, the, on your mind. For Deborah, the home she shares with her dog in Aubrey is one of the only things she has left. The last seven years have been a constant battle for her to try and stay away from the pokies. Her addiction has covered the cost of relationships, family breakdowns and $50,000. It's crippling sometimes. Sometimes it's, it's all you ever think about and, and you, it's day by day you have to fight the urge to, to gamble. Despite living hundreds of kilometres from a casino, her region is saturated with poker machines. Data from the New South Wales Office of Liquor and Gaming shows the New South Wales Victorian border region has some of the highest densities of poker machines per capita in New South Wales. The Murray River local government area, which includes the town of Moama, hosts 998 poker machines, with a population just below 13,000. Poker machine density in the border region is higher than Sydney's pokey hotspots, like Canterbury-Bankstown, which has one machine for every 96 residents. Reverend Stu Cameron from Wesley Mission is an advocate for gambling reform and finds the figures astonishing. I mean, it's a staggering figure, is that One in 13. You have a, a poker machine for every 13 people in that area, which really shows that it's become a casino area, a mini casino area. In the Federation Shire, there is one machine for every 17 people, and further west in 
Aubrey, there is one for every 53 people. Deborah, who we've chosen to keep anonymous, has lived in the Aubrey area for all of her life and said the proliferation of machines has made her addiction harder to manage. It makes it hard because it's so accessible. It's just so easy to access and they're open late at night. You know, you can go at any time and yeah, it's just too easy and there's all, you know, ATMs through all of them. You can access money wherever you want to. So yeah, it just makes it tough because you um, you can't escape it. New South Wales was the first state to legalise poker machines in 1956. For decades, people were taken in their busloads from the surrounding states to play. Lucky days. Now, how much money you got to spend today? Put up your money. Let's have a look at it. Oh, that's terrific. Victoria legalised poker machines in 1991, partly to stop their citizens travelling to gamble. But 32 years on, the clubs over the river are still growing. Reverend Stu Cameron. And so over decades, a whole industry developed. Clubs got richer, became more elaborate, became better at luring punters to come and to stay and to spend their time not just on the poker machines, but on the golf courses, on the lawn bowls, pitches, these sorts of things. So the fact that there was such a a significant advantage given to New South Wales towns and regions in establishing this industry is still playing out today. Between June 2021 and June 2022, there were $55 million in profits from poker machines in the Murray River LGA's clubs and $74 million in the Aubrey and Greater Hume LGA's. The amount of machines on the New South Wales side of the Murray is far greater than on the Victorian side. In a statement, Clubs New South Wales says the combined population of the Murray and Aubrey LGA's is 69,000 people, including minors. However, there are over 112,000 club members, indicating that many local Victorians are members of clubs located on the New South Wales side of the border. Clubs are required to contribute part of their revenue back into community organisations. The biggest club in the Murray River LGA, the Moama Bowling Club, sponsors a range of community organisations, including the local football and netball club, whose president is Matt Lake. We are very reliant on sponsorship, um, but our major sponsor is the Moama Bowling Club, and they don't just sponsor us, they sponsor a wide variety of um, not-for-profit organisations around the Chukum Moama, which is fantastic. So they're our number one supporter, number one sponsor, and um, they're a great asset to the Mama Football Netball Club. He's concerned about the potential for poker machine reforms after this month's state election to reduce sponsorship money coming into the club. It'll make things a lot harder from our committee's point of view, our volunteers' point of view, just to, just to get the game of footy and game of netball happening every Saturday through the winter months. The New South Wales government has put forward reforms to poker machines ahead of this month's state election. They include the introduction of a mandatory cashless gaming card by 2028 and a statewide self-exclusion register. Helen Dalton is the independent member for Murray, whose electorate encompasses much of the border region. Despite the large amount of clubs and machines in her electorate, she's come out as a strong supporter of the government's plan. Well, here we see people that have lost a lot of money. We have gambling uh, addicts here and, of course, there's no support services. So they're often in financial difficulty. They lose their jobs, often they lose their homes, their marriages, their family. It's just a breakdown in their um, social world.
Mrs Dalton's stance on reform has drawn the ire of clubs in her electorate. They have come out strongly against me, Clubs New South Wales. They have put a poster of me in most clubs that are participating in the in the electorate of Murray, saying that I'm not doing the right thing, that I'm stepping outside of what I should be doing. But I think it's time for reform. Clubs New South Wales says a brief campaign by clubs in Murray was sparked by the frustration felt by local clubs about Mrs Dalton's refusal to engage with them. Reverend Cameron thinks the reforms on the table in New South Wales could impact the situation on the border. This is why we think that reform is important not just for New South Wales but for Victoria. We believe that it has the potential for shifting some of the challenges south of the border but we hope and expect that if we have this reform rollout in New South Wales the pressure on the Victorian government and on the Queensland government up north will be similar and we'll see reforms come through there very soon after as well. Recovering gambler Deborah is unsure whether the reforms will make a difference for people like her? Uh, Look, it probably would make it a little bit harder, but I think as a compulsive gambler like I am, it wouldn't make a difference. You would find a way. But she does think some change is needed. I think changes to policies would be good and, and to hold the clubs a bit more accountable for what they do. Like, I don't know, anything that they could do to help help a person that struggles with gambling would be good. Recovering gambler Deborah ending that report by Victor Petrovich. And that brings Australia Wide to a close for this Thursday. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.